The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 5 again. Romans chapter 5. We're now on our third week in verses 3 through 5, which address the subject of God's process in difficulty, God's processes in trials, in uh, tribulations, in suffering. And the primary context of this is in reference to suffering for the gospel. And yet, the principles that are outlined here certainly extend to every level of our own experience in difficulty and in trial. Follow along as I read, just to set in our mind the whole context from verse 1. Therefore, Paul says, having been justified by faith, he's explained that for four chapters, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The consequence of God's justifying grace is no longer being at war with God, but being at peace with him. Through whom we've also obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exalt In the hope of the glory of God, and not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. Perseverance, proven character, proven character, hope, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. If you were to take a few minutes after the service today and swing by my office, you could look in and you'll see that on my wall, on the wall to my left, looking over my desk are some pictures. They're portraits. They're, frankly, of a bunch of dead guys. These are some of my heroes in the faith. For different reasons, they all hang there, and I feel, in a very metaphorical sense, their presence as I study and try to minister week in and week out. One of those pictures is of a man named William Carey. I read his biography a few years ago, and uh, along with Kim, and it really rocked my world and reoriented my thinking about missions and missionaries. Carey was a British missionary to India. He was a brilliant and disciplined linguist, and he translated the Bible into over a dozen Indian dialects and languages. He ministered in India from 1793 to 1834, dying there after four decades of faithful service. The base camp of William Carey's translation ministry was in um, uh, Serampore in, in a printing shop that was, it was small. It was 200 by 50 feet, and there was uh, a group of people who worked with him, with him. There were typesetters, compositors, pressmen, binders writers, and 20 men who he employed as translators who brought the Indian dialect to him and he would then translate it for them. Well, on March 11th, 1812, Carey was away in Calcutta on a ministry trip. And while he was there, a fire started in the printing room and despite hours of trying to fight down that blaze, the entire building, building was burnt to the ground. William Carey's entire library was lost, including his completed Sanskrit dictionary, his Bengal dictionary, two grammar books, 11 translations of the Bible, 10 translations of the Bible, rather, that he had completed but not yet gone to press. The typesets and the manufacturing for 14 languages were instantly gone. 
His English paper was all gone. All of his dictionaries, deeds, account records, and even much of his personal property was gone in a blaze. 20 years of nonstop work were instantly gone. When he returned from his trip, he came to the scene and he sobbed and wept and said this, quote, In one short evening, the labors of years are consumed. How unsearchable are the ways of God. I had lately brought some things to the utmost perfection of which they seemed capable and contemplated the missionary establishment with perhaps too much self-congratulation. The Lord has laid me low that I may look more simply to him. Heartbroken, he wrote a letter to a friend back in England, and he said this, The loss is heavy, but as traveling a road the second time is usually done with greater ease than the first time, so I trust the work will lose nothing of real value. We are not discouraged. Indeed, the work has already begun again in every language. We are cast down, but we are not despair. He goes on, the ground must be labored over again, but we are not discouraged. We have been supported under this affliction and persevered from discouragement. To me, the consideration of the divine sovereignty and wisdom has been very supporting. I endeavored to improve our affliction this last Lord's Day, reading from Psalm 46.10, Be still and know that I am God. I principally dwelt upon two ideas, he says. First, that God has a sovereign right to dispose of us as he pleases. And secondly, we ought to acquiesce in all that God does with us and to us. What would you do if you'd worked 20 years on something and it was gone? There was no backup. There was no external hard drives. There was no cloud to put this stuff in. It was all physical and it was gone in a simple blaze. Well, the bedrock of William Carey's response was based on what he knew to be true. We've been looking at these three verses in Romans 5, 3 to 5, which is the bedrock of Paul's instruction to us about difficulties, about trials, about suffering, about temptation. And we've noted that the most significant word in this passage, and maybe one of the most important words in your life, in your entire theological construct, is this. The word knowing. Knowing. Not only this, Paul says, but we exalt, we over, we're overjoyed in our tribulations. How? Knowing. What do you know? What do you think when trouble and trials come? It's really remarkable. This week, I have been, I shouldn't be shocked, but I've really been taken by the fact that we're studying these things, and I, I, it's, I can't count the number of trials that have come up in the church, my family, in our lives. They just seem to spring up. I always uh, am a little nervous when we start talking about and studying trials. You just think, what, is the Lord preparing us for something? And the answer is, of course, he is. Let me quickly review what we did in the last couple weeks, and then we'll move on to something else that I want to add to it. We looked specifically at three Christian difficulties, excuse me, three Christian distinctives in difficult circumstances. 
Three Christian distinctives in difficult circumstances. The first is this, growth in a counterintuitive response to difficulties. We think differently than the world does. Verse 3 says, not only this, but we exult in our tribulations. What? (laughs) He just said we exult in the hope of heaven. That word exult is not, as we've noted, the word exalt. Two different words. Exalt was with an A. Exalt is with a U. Exalt means to emotionally engage and overflow with joy. Now, that makes sense at the end of verse 2. We exult in the hope of heaven. Who wouldn't? But he also says, not only do we exult in the hope of heaven, he actually says, we exult. We overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly, overjoyingly experience tribulation? You just have to say, time out, Paul. This is not normal thinking. This is counterintuitive. No one exults in their tribulation. Paul says, on the contrary. On the contrary. We do. The ESV says that uh, these are sufferings. So does the NIV. The New American Standard calls them tribulation. The Greek word is slipsis. It means pressure. We exult under the pressures that come on our life that seem to come from one or two or a thousand different directions. And make us pressured to feel like what we believe about God isn't true. We said in the last couple of weeks that word is used of pressing into grapes or for, for the extraction of the juice for wine or pressing onto olives for the extraction of olive oil. We exult in those pressures, we have joy because of those pressures. Really? Really consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Really? How? How? And second, we noted that there's an awareness of the invisible processes behind our difficulties. And it all comes down to one word. I hope you've circled it. I hope you've highlighted it. I hope you've put it on your refrigerator. Whatever you do in your Bible, do it to that word, knowing. We exult in our tribulation, knowing. That's another way of saying we exalt in our tribulation because of our theology, because of what we know to be true. What does a believer know in the midst of trials? He gives us a little process here. He says, we know that tribulation brings about perseverance. In other words, being in the trial, being under the pressure, gives us, the Greek word is hupomeno, hupomene, to, to live under, to stay under the pressure without being tortured and squashed by it. The ability to stay under the pressure and grow from it. We exalt because it gives us the opportunity to grow and to endure through suffering. And that endurance, that perseverance, brings about proven character. As I said last week, trials reveal sin. Trials will show us where we trust, where we distrust. Where we hope, where we don't hope. It shows us our heart. And proven character brings hope. Why? Because we see that God is doing something in our lives. And that there is a world that's coming that will have no tears and no sorrows. And we can hope in it. And then he says that little little phrase, and hope doesn't disappoint. And you see the full circle. See? You start in despair and in tribulation where you're trying to exult, and you go through this process and it brings hope, and that hope doesn't disappoint where we have no reason to be disappointed, discouraged, disillusioned because of trials. If we know what God is doing, it's all about what we know. 
And then lastly, in these verses, we looked at the comfort that comes from the divine supply for our difficulties. Verse 5 says, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts. What is the love of God? It's what the English teachers and Greek uh, um, linguists would call a double entendre. Is this the love from God or is this our love of God? And the answer is letter C, all of the above. The love of God has been poured out with our hearts. We love him because we see his processes. We love him because he's giving us this love that makes us more like him. It all works together. He loves us. We love him. It's been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit, that great divine supply. Well, that's what we covered. What I wanted to do is, is take a little, uh, little um, uh, field trip with you from this passage and, and explore a little bit more of what we know in our trials, what we know in our difficulties. You know, ultimately, the Christian pulpit is not just to disseminate truth and to tell you stuff that, that's interesting or that's curious. It's to instruct our hearts in what we can know so that when we come to a place where having that knowledge comes to bear, that we're equipped. So we're going to kind of pull the car over and take a little tour through some scripture and talk about what else do we know? This is what we know. We know that God is doing this process in us. That's important, but there's more that we can know. That's really what the whole scriptures are for. We know, first of all, that trials are going to come, don't we? As I said over and over, James doesn't say, consider it all joy, my brethren, if you encounter various trials. He says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Then he uses the word, knowing, knowing something. Since knowing then is critical to our ability to persevere, to understand through a, through a suffering, through a trial, I want us to look at what else we know from the scriptures. And in doing that, I want to give you some building blocks for a theology of suffering. Some building blocks for a theology of suffering. This is not all that the Bible says about suffering. It would take us the rest of our lives to study that fully. But these are some building blocks that we need to make sure are set in place in our thinking. These are things we need to know so that when difficulty comes, when trials come, when suffering comes, when gospel persecution comes, we can step back and rest on these things that we know, take a deep breath, and in our inner being, smile in exaltation because God has not left us. In fact, he's using this trial for his glory and our good. So as I said, this is not an exhaustive list, but these are some things I wanted to add to our study on suffering. Number one, afflictions remind us of God's sovereignty. Afflictions, difficulties, suffering, hard times, difficulties, Remind us that God is in charge. Can I put a little parentheses or footnote in there? Or it will make us question whether God's in charge. Do you know? Do you have confidence that when things go bad in your life, when things go, quote, wrong in your life, that God isn't up in heaven wringing his hands saying, oh, I wish that hadn't happened? Maybe he's over in Afghanistan, and maybe he's down in South America. He wasn't looking at us, and this happened while he was what do you think, what do you know about God? Well, first of all, we know that God is still in charge and God is sovereign. God has not left the throne. Just think for a second. I'm going I'm to be going very fast. You can try to turn to these passages if you, if you want. Maybe better just to write them down and look at them later. Ruth chapter 1, verse 21. Ruth says, I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. I'm sorry, not Ruth. Naomi says that. Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord 
has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me. Do you hear what Naomi said? This has happened to me and God is sovereign over it and God has brought it to me. What kind of theology believes that? Well, let's keep going. Job chapter 1. Job says, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Who took away? Who took away Job's children? Who took away Job's health? Who took all this away? Well, you say, well, Satan did that. Well, Satan had permission from God to do what he did. It was the Lord who was behind this. Job chapter 2. He says to his wife, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall, listen to this, listen to this. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity from God? From who? From God. Do you know this? Jeremiah 24, 5. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, like these good figs, so I will regard as good the captives of Judah. It's talking about the Babylonian captivity. Listen to this. Whom I have sent out of this place into the land of the Chaldeans. Who was responsible for the judgment of Judah in Babylon, the judgment of Israel in Assyria? God sent them there, and just because it looked bad doesn't mean that in God's providence it was. And then one of my favorite passages in all the Bible, as Jeremiah watches Nebuchadnezzar come and besiege Jerusalem, ransack the temple, steal all the holy uh, implements and utensils, from the, and, and basically announce to the world, I just beat Yahweh, I just beat God, I am the king of the world, this God of Israel doesn't exist, I just conquered his temple. Jeremiah is watching this Scene and probably from the Mount of Olives, write these, write these four or five poems, these five poems in the book of Lamentations, and says this Who is there who speaks and it comes to pass? The Babylonians said, We're going to come get you. They did. Who does that? And then he says this Unless the Lord has commanded it. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and the word is ill, adversity, evil, bad things? Go forth. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good things and bad things go forth? Why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his sins? So let me ask you first of all, does your theology of bad things, of affliction, of suffering, of difficulty, does that start with the fact that God is in charge of those things? Before you say that's troublesome to me, can I offer you the alternative, which is even more troublesome? That God is not in charge of those things? Th then who is? That's a comfort, not a threat. I've told you one of my favorite theological moments of that time my friend Greg Hudgens, who, was, uh, who eventually died of brain cancer, had a brain surgery where they found out that he had cancer, and he called me in, and he said, Rick, is God in charge? That was a very difficult theological moment for me to say, well, yes, he is. He says, is he in charge of the cancer cells in my body? Yes, he is, Greg. And he leaned his head back, and I'll never forget the tears rolling down his cheek and saying, then this is okay. Then this is okay. 
Do you believe? Do you know that God is in sovereign control? Secondly, do you know, do you believe that afflictions reveal sin? We talked about that a little bit last week. That these afflictions reveal sin. Now, just turn over to Psalm 119. I'd like you to see these verses, maybe mark them, circle them. These are a couple of verses, three verses, that have been such a ministry to me. They've been ministry to, to my wife, Kim. We've talked about these over and over and over. Psalm 119, you know, is, is the psalmist extolling the, the virtues of God's word. Listen to this. Psalm 119, verse 67. Psalm 119, verse 67. The psalmist says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now, I keep your word. Do you see that? Before I was afflicted, the answer is by whom? By God. Before I was afflicted, I, I went astray. But because you afflicted me now, I keep your word. He goes on, verse 71. It is good for me that I was afflicted. Why? That I may learn your statutes. Verse 75. I know, do you see it? I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness, you have afflicted me. And faithfulness to what? The context tells us. I'm going to give you affliction to show you where you need to work on your character. Now we're back in Romans 5. Very few people in, in good times without difficulty are, are working on their character as hard as when difficulty comes. Because you're asking yourself, am I responding rightly? So, afflictions should make you scratch your head and swallow hard and saying, is there sin in my life that I can address that's arisen because of my response to God's actually being in charge of everything? You know, one of my sins that's just prevalent every, almost, almost every time I experience a difficulty, I don't say it, but my emotions sing it. It goes something like this. I don't deserve this. I shouldn't. This shouldn't be happening to me. You know what the bedrock foundation below that is? Well, the wages of sin is death. The fact that I can be alive to experience an affliction is a grace of God. Thirdly, Afflictions mature and sanctify us, following closely on the fact that they reveal our sin. They mature and sanctify us. The cousin passage, the sibling passage, rather, of Romans 3, 2, 3 to 5, is in James 1, 2 to 4. We referenced it already. Consider it all joy, my brethren. That's the same as saying, exalt in our tribulations. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Here's our word. Knowing that the testing of your faith. Now we find something else. God is testing our faith in trials and difficulties. And that produces the same word, endurance. The ability to stay under pressure. And let this endurance have its perfect result so that you may be, the, the New American Standard says perfect and complete. It literally, literally means mature and complete, lacking in nothing. He's doing these things to show us immature thinking, immature actions, immature attitudes, so that those can be perfected, matured, sanctified, because, and here's the catch, we would not have seen them without the trial. 
Can you hold on to your theological seats and let me say something? The goal when we're in an affliction and the goal when we're in a trial and the goal when we're under these pressures should not be to get out from under the pressure and to get out of the trial. The goal should be to see what God's work is in our lives and be sanctified and matured by it. You will one day be in a place where there's no trials and no afflictions and no troubles. It's a place, and it's called heaven. Fourthly, idols topple, excuse me, affections topple our idols. You say, well, I don't have any idols. I've seen idols in American, in National Geographic. There are these stone things, and you, you bow down and bring them, uh, uh, you know, fruit and stuff. When I was in L.A., living in L.A., a lot of the uh, donut shops were owned by uh, Taiwanese. Now, the Taiwanese can make good donuts. I want to tell you right now, very good donuts. But almost in all those shops is a little idol, and they would have a fresh donut there in front of the idol every day that everyone could see that was an offering to their God. If that's a part of your life, please repent. We'll talk about that after the service. I, I don't think that's, but that's not exactly what I'm talking about here with the idols. These are idols of our heart. These are things that we worship in the place of God, and they could be ourselves, our comfort, our disposition, our materialism. First Thessalonians chapter 1. Look how this is tied together with our idols. Uh, um, idols and our worship of idols. You also, Paul says, became imitators of us and the Lord, having received the word with much tribulation. There it is. You received the word. You, your theology was taught to you in the midst of trials and tribulation with joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became exa- an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. Sometimes God wants to make us, as we'll see in a moment, examples because of the way we handle trials. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth. So that we have no need to say anything. What a reputation. You're in tribulation. You're in trial. You believe God. What a reputation that people know. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we have with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath of God to come. Very interesting. He tells us something about the idols of our heart here. Because he contrasts it with Christ who's coming who we don't see. Here's what he's saying. You transfer, because of this tribulation, because of the affliction, because of your, your pressure that's on you, you transfer your, your worship from Things that you could see, idols that you can see and experience, taste, touch, smell, feel for the coming Lord Jesus who you can't see. Trials and tribulations help you see that the things in this world will never bring you the answers we need in the midst of a trial. Will it? And here's a story. Even if they did, tomorrow's got trouble coming too. 
topples our idols. One of the things we need to do in the midst of a trial is to step back and say, what are the objects of my worship? What, what is this revealing about where my confidence is instead of the Lord? Number five, afflictions make us long for heaven. Please turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 for a moment. Afflictions make us long for heaven. 2 Corinthians 4, Paul is in the middle of giving a defense of his ministry. He's telling them his afflictions, his trials, his tribulation, his suffering. And he has kind of a self-reflective, close his eyes and uh, just kind of emote moment. Look at verse 7. We have this treasure of the gospel, which he just talked about in verse 6. We have this treasure in earthen vessels, these bodies that are going to go away. So that the surpassing power of God will, surpassing power will be of God and not from ourselves. Isn't that interesting? God has afflicted us and troubled us so that we couldn't solve our own problems and only God could. We are afflicted in every way. We're not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our body. You know what he's saying there? We carry around the memory that Jesus died and rose from the dead. And so if the worst that can happen to us is to die, we have confidence that we will rise, rise from the dead as well. For we're constantly, look at this word, we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Jump down to verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Why do we not lose heart? I skipped a part to show you the connection. Go back to verse 14. What's the first word? What's the first word? Knowing. Knowing about the resurrection. I mean, come on, really, folks. If we're going to go to heaven after we die, that should have immeasurable impact on how we think and live. But he goes on, therefore we don't lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, our body is decaying, it's experiencing turmoil and, and um, a decline. Um, those of you in junior high, high school, and college, just trust me, it's coming. Yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. <laughs> this is, Paul, Paul is funny sometimes. I mean, it really makes you laugh. When you turn over to, we won't go there, in chapter 11, he's talking about being shipwrecked, being beaten, being left for dead, these massive trials. And then he says this, for momentary light affliction, excuse me, momentary light affliction, you were beaten and left for dead, and that's momentary and light affliction then he goes back to the process. It's producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Now he tells us something. We need to be in the business of comparing these sufferings with heaven's joys. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. There's your theology. 
You want to be discouraged? Watch the news. You want to be discouraged? Live life. Just wake up. I can promise you there are things waiting to discourage you today. Isn't that encouraging? Regardless of who you're for in the playoffs. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. There's your theology. Is your knowing anchored in the hope of Christ after death, which makes you know why to live, as we've said over and over. If you're not ready for death, you don't know how to live. And if you're not living right, that's because you're not thinking about death. Every one of us have an expiration date on our birth certificate in heaven. I always go back to that. That mortician, that funeral home director who signs all of his letters, eventually yours. It's temporal. It's temporary. No matter what you're facing, no matter what you face, it's temporary. Heaven doesn't end. There's no end to the joy. Thomas Watson says this. Afflictions work for good, Puritan Thomas Watson, as they are means of loosening our hearts from the world. When you dig away the earth from the root of a tree, it is to loosen the tree from the earth. So God digs away our earthly comforts to loosen our hearts from the earth. And then I love this statement. A thorn grows up with every flower. God would have the world hang as a loose tooth, which, being twitched away, does not trouble us anymore. Is the world to you a little loose tooth that is annoying you and you just can't wait to be rid of it? Or is this it? Now, come on. Most of us live life like this is it. So God brings trials and tribulations into our life to remind us, <clears throat> excuse me, this is not your home. You're not going to be here forever. In other words, trials are God's gracious way of saying, hey, don't be too comfortable on the earth. I want to remind you, this is not heaven. It's, no matter how we have a a diminishment or a cessation of trials. This is not heaven. Number six, afflictions give us perspective. Back in 1 Corinthians 4, look at verse 18 for a minute. We look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. It gives us perspective. We think outside of this world. Can you do me a favor? Think back to five years ago, let's say. Can you think of something you worried about? I mean, just something, just anything you worried about. Uh, how big a deal is that now? The things that you are concerned about now, how will they measure in five years, ten years in heaven? They give us perspective. Martin Luther said that, I love this, I could not rightly understand the Psalms until I experienced tribulation, end quote. Doesn't it seem like the Psalms are the invitation when we're in trouble to come back and to find God? You know why? Because those men suffered too. They responded, are you ready for this? Sometimes right, and sometimes not so well, but very honestly. Luther goes on to write, conduct yourselves as those who are no longer citizens of the world. 
For your possessions lie not on this earth, but in heaven. And although you may have lost all temporal goods, you still have Christ, who is more than all else. Wow. Can you consider that if you lose anything on this world, in this planet, that nothing compares to the great gain of Christ? The devil is the prince of this world, Luther says. And he rules it. His citizens are the people of the world. Therefore, since you are not of the world, act as a stranger at an inn who does not have his possessions with him, but merely procures food and spends his money for this and that. For this world is merely a place of transit where we cannot stay. We must travel further. Therefore, we should use worldly goods only to shelter and sustain ourselves before we depart and go to another land in heaven we are citizens but on earth we are pilgrims and guests you have that perspective do afflictions let you stop and say whatever I'm troubled about losing here I won't experience that loss forever Number seven, afflictions work for God's glory and our good. Back to Romans chapter eight. Now, I'm not going to say much about this because we're going to study Romans 8, 28, and I can assure you that will be a series, not a sermon. You all know Romans 8, 28. Afflictions work for God's glory and our good. What's the first statement in Romans 8, 28? And we, what? No. Are you getting a pattern here? And we know that God causes. Stop right there. That God is the source of something. God causes good things to work. Is that what it says? God causes pleasant things. Do you underline things in your Bible? God causes what? All things to work together. Notice work together. Your trouble, my affliction, our, our suffering, our, our bad things are not the only thing. God is doing a lot of things during that with us, about us, for us, through us. They work together, lots of things to work together for good. Wow. Do you believe that the things that you and I interpret as bad in this earth, on this earth, are actually being used by God for our good? Really? To those who love God. We are to love this one who is the source of giving us all things, some that are bad, to those who are called according to his purpose. How can he say that? Well, verse 33 says, because who can bring in charge against us, against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who can condemn? Nobody. Who will separate us, verse 35, from the love of Christ? Will tribulation separate us from the love of Christ? Now we find out what the enemy's fulcrum is in bringing us tribulations. He is trying to separate us from our understanding and confidence in Christ's love. You see that? 
If he can get us to doubt God's love for us, if he can get us to doubt the gospel, if he can get us to think that God and his ways are for some other time and some other person, me and my ways and my personal satisfaction in a temporal way are only for me and my good, and those are separate, then he's won. Who will separate us from the love of God in Christ? Will, tri- will tribulation do that? No. How about distress? No. Persecution? Nope. Famine? Nope. Nakedness? Peril? Sword? Not a chance. Even being put to death in verse 36, no way. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Because I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here's the deal. If the love of God, with the, the things we sang earlier, those truths, if God's love for us and our love for God, if Christ's death for us is not central to our possession, if it's not central, the central feature of our desire to make something precious, if it's not the most important thing to us, then these things will certainly threaten us because those things will reveal our idols. We think if this happens, I will be happy. I'll have joy. Afflictions work for God's glory, and they work for our good. You can hold that because we're going to come back and spend several weeks there. And lastly, afflictions silence the wicked. It's an interesting point. Afflictions silence the wicked. Genesis 50, remember the wicked that Joseph's brothers wanted to intend on him? He finally has, uh, rises to the prime minister of Egypt. His brothers come and he says to them, you meant this for evil against me, but God meant it for good. Wow. When people are doing bad things against you, you can have confidence that God means that experience to work out for your and my good. Are you willing to accept that God in your afflictions and in your sufferings, in your tribulations, that God may be making an example of you to the world and to the enemy. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 9, For I think God has exhibited us apostles, last of all, as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world and to angels and to men. He will confound the world by watching, when they watch us, suffer differently than they do, grieve differently than they do, weep differently than they do, hope differently than they do. This theology that we've talked about, it's just, it's not possible. You can't have this kind of perspective unless God has changed your heart about his son. Unless Christ is precious to you because of his death for you on a brutal cross in exchange for our death as a payment for sin. Unless you believe in that, unless you believe that he raised him from the dead and offers you hope after death in a resurrection with him forever because of Christ, then this this isn't going to work for you. I'm sorry. I just want to say maybe you should just Take as many sedatives as you can and sleep for the rest of your life. That's the only thing I could offer you as far as comfort in this world. 
Because you know what? This world is going to throw curveballs at you. Only the gospel gives us this. And because we believe the gospel, we can know these things. Do you know them? Do you know them? Are they the bedrock? Do you have a theology for affliction and suffering and bad things? Are you ready for them? Listen, they, they are either here in your life now, or they were last week or last month, or they are what? Coming. After that fire that destroyed his life work in India, William Carey resolved to trust God that he would provide a better press with more scholarly translations. And within a few months, Carey had set up shop in a warehouse. And very little did William Carey know that the fire would bring him and his work notoriety in, and the people of India would know about this and it would reach the, the news would reach all the way back to Europe and even over to America. And less than two months later, about 10,000 pounds, an enormous amount of money in that day, was raised in England, so much so that the pastors in England had to say, stop giving to this cause. He has too much money for it. Soon, countless volunteers traveled to India to help William Carey reestablish his ministry. And that was the beginning and the first known experience of what we now call short-term missions. By 1832, Carey rebuilt and expanded his printing operation, had published complete Bibles or portions of the Bible in 44 languages. He labored in that country for four continuous decades, never returning to England. For three weeks, we've been saying, enacting all this theology is really about three questions. When something bad happens, what do I feel? What do I think? What do I know? If you never get to what you know, your thinking will depend on how you feel. And that, all of us can give a testimony to the fact that doesn't work out so well. What do you know? You can only know what you need. Is this the read the Bible more sermon? You caught me. You caught me. This is where we know what we need to know to endure any trial. Father, please Teach us, instruct us, cause us to know things that are truths that the world cannot see, that are accepted by faith and not sight, that give us perspective and help us to rise above the clouds of this terrible and tortured world and see that there is one day a reality in heaven with you forever where the tears will be wiped away, the suffering will cease, sin will be gone, and the love that we have for you and the love that you have given us will be embraced in its fullest reality. I'm aware, with your eyes closed, that there are those who don't know Christ. And this is just fantasy to you. Why would anyone look at bad things and say good can come from it? Can I just beg you that the worst thing in your life is not things that can happen to you, but what God will do to you if you reject his son? These are temporary. Hell is forever. 
please, please, I would beg you, please, receive his grace and believe in the cross. Our prayer room is going to be open. Rosenbaums will be over there if you want to talk or pray about anything. If we can bear a burden with you, we would love to. There's a trial we can pray with you and for you about. Father, these truths are heavy, but life is heavy. These truths are tough, but life is tough. And these truths are hopeful, and life offers us no hope. Change our minds. Tell us, teach us, cause us to think based on what we know so we can control how we feel. For your glory, Lord, and we believe for our good, we pray. Because of Jesus, amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. <laughs>